Welcome to the Recapables Billions, proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I am Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that they've finished playing a furious foosball match with Grigor Andalov, it's Ringer Chief Content Officer and Editor-in-Chief Sean Fennessy. Titles, titles, titles. And Ringer Staff Writer Allison Herman. Great start, Mal. Thank you. I am but a Wendy to your Chuck and Axe. <laughs> God, I'm not sure how I feel about that after where Chuck and Axe wound up this week. But, colleagues, we are here to discuss the Billions Season 3 finale called The Elmsley Count, which is, as Sean will tell us at great length over the course of this episode, a nod to uh, various sleight of hands that the characters try to pull on one another over the course of this hour of TV, and indeed this season, and indeed the three seasons that we've seen so far. It is not just about numbers and decimal points. The thing that makes it matter is lasting relationships, true loyalty, real trust. No, I'm pretty sure there's only money and it can buy all those things or at least the same result. That's what you and Axe taught me. Before we dive into the plot and our various awards, did you have any alternate titles for this episode? No. Okay. <laughs> I thought it was perfectly titled. Okay. Sean? I, I'll just pull uh, a line from the episode that I thought would make for a great title, which was, more than residue, wait. Mm-hmm. I thought there were a lot of great thematic statements, but in true Billion style, they were a little too florid and long to have the the compact punch that you wanted of a good episode title. I had three alternate title ideas. Fire away. Just was preparing to have to carry you guys, you know? (laughs) First one, obviously, Roll Tide Roll. Anytime we get a Nick Saban Alabama football nod on an episode. I truly thought of you when that happened. One of my favorite television programs. That was a real real moment for me. I can't believe you finished the episode. I assumed you just collapsed. Well, I took a break. I looked at myself in the mirror. I shouted, Champions Never Sleep. I ate an oatmeal (laughs) cream pie just like Nick Saban, and then I resumed. My other one was The Prestige, because the Elmsley Count is not the only magic trick that was referenced in this episode, which is notable. And then finally, the death zone, which was part of Axe's prolonged and I thought alarming Mount Everest analogy. I can't believe there's not like a better name for that. The zone where people die is just called the death zone. I feel like we could do better than that with our mountain climbing metaphors. (laughs) And yet it tells you what you need to know, which is effective. And I would now like us to head into our own death zone. The 42-second recap. Al, take it away. Okay. The funding raise is finally happening, but Taylor isn't there because they're meeting with Andalov. Once they've arrived, the Axe crew brings in $6 billion and celebrates with a private hold steady concert, only for Taylor to abscond with $3.5 billion of it, and Mephi. All hail Mace Cap. Andalov offers to exterminate some vermin, heavy air quotes there, but after due consideration, Axe says no. He wants Taylor to be alive for all the things he's going to do to them. Meanwhile, Chuck and Alvin Epstein hatch a plan to entrap Jock by prosecuting his brother Zebulon, which Jock <laughs> will then ask Chuck to stop in a clear-cut case of obstruction. That's when every single one of Chuck's demons comes back to haunt him. Jock, Epstein, Sacker, Connerty, and Dake ambush him in his office, choosing Trumpism over the now former U.S. attorney. Wendy brings her two men together to lick their wounds over some red wine, and we end the season with some velvet underground and good old-fashioned scheming. Wow, that was positively Rubenesque in the sense that it was four times the allotted length, (laughs) but also 
Great job. I thought you did Thank very you. well, Allison. You did Thank a wonderful you. job. There was a, you know, it's a Billions episode and it's a Billions season finale. So there was a lot, but maybe less than we expected. I don't want to say it wasn't anticlimactic or predictable so much as this show does a very good job of signaling subtly what is going to happen. And we obviously close read the show to a greater extent than the average audience member. But I think this was all the stuff that Koppelman and Levine, who co-wrote the episode, have been hinting at throughout the season. So it delivers on both the ascendancy of Taylor Mason and the ascendancy of Kate Sacker as a political animal. I do not think it was particularly hard to draw some parallels between the Axe and Chuck plot lines this week. But I think it is one of those things where... Because we've known this has happened for so long, it's maybe not quite as surprising as, say, Axe and Chuck, like, forming a truce midway for the third season. You're like, where is the show going from here? The show's been telling us where it has been going. So I can understand why some people who may or may not include my co-host might be disappointed. But I do think that was a little bit of an inevitable consequence of being a very deliberately plotted TV show. No disappointment. I think that this show has a similar tendency to Game of Thrones, where the penultimate episode is often where the most like heart-thumping action is, and then the finale is really about trying to strike what is ultimately a very difficult balance of tying together the threads that, as you noted, have been stitched throughout the entire season and also effectively setting up the next season, which this episode certainly did. You know, I, I can't, I personally cannot wait for a season of Axe and Chuck as allies, or for however many episodes I'm not sure that's going to last very long, but I I agree with you. I mean, we were here last week just talking about uh, the 11th episode, and I went on at length about the inevitability of the storytelling in this show, and I'm content to be completely wrong. I'm content to learn that, in fact, this is ultimately not about Chuck and Axe having a showdown, and maybe it will be in season five or season eight or what have you, but next season they've obviously clearly plotted a different course. I I think it's obvious that we saw what was happening with Taylor and the direction that that was moving in, essentially from episode one of this season. I'm not sure that I could have predicted that we were going to get Chuck in this spot, though. Well, you say that, but it occurs to me that once he says, I do not want to be governor. I like this office. This is where I want to stay. Of course, he's like immediately going to be pushed out of the nest. That was one of those things where once it happened, I was like, oh, that that's what they meant by saying he actually enjoys this job and would like to stay here. That was that was the subtle cue. Chuck's downfall is always the least surprising thing to me on the show, just because it it feels inevitable. He is the one who, while the Chuck and Axe storylines often have the parallels that Al just noted, I always just think Axe will be able to pull it off at the end, and I never have the faith that Chuck will, mostly because he, you know, we've talked about this all season long, he just remains shockingly perpetually blind to his own hypocrisy and doesn't ever see how he's putting himself in vulnerable positions and how that might bite him. So that was not shocking to me. I I, I don't know that I necessarily, from the sacker or even Connerty and Dake perspective, totally understand why that was the moment they chose to act. Like, as Sacker says to Connerty at the bar, this isn't the moment to go after him. He's finally trying to do something good. Like, yeah, he's chucks back on his bullshit, but for once that bullshit might result in like a net gain for the world. And then they turned on him anyway. Like, I don't understand why in any way helping Jock Jeffcoat is a good move for those people, but... 
That is, they're not, that's not mutually exclusive. I'm not surprised that Chuck did not make it through. Chuck's entire plot line, or rather the people around Chuck's entire plot line, was just the complete and decisive choice of political expediency over principles. Like, they've done a great job through cases like Jose Lugo proving that Jock and what he stands for is not just, you know, personally repugnant. It's not just about him abusing people who work for him. It's about the real-life consequences of what this administration is doing and what it's choosing to go after. And I did think it was the, you know, the Attorney General of New York State, since the season has debuted, he's been disgraced and left office, but I thought Alvin Epstein is supposed to be sort of loosely modeled after Eric Schneiderman, who's who was an Attorney General who very aggressively goes after Trump because you can't pardon state offenses. That's is probably a good thing to keep in mind for the next few years of the American Republic. But the fact that that kind of person would then choose to be the deputy AG of a severe hard right Republican administration fits with the billions world. I did not know if that would necessarily track with the real world. But again, what we love about the show is that it bears very little resemblance to the real world. I mean, broadly speaking, aspirin politicians are never to be trusted. And anybody who puts himself in a position like that is inevitably defined and motivated by ambition. And I'm almost certain that Sacker and Connerty will ultimately not be in the position of being a slave to the whims of Jock Jeffcoat. That just seems highly implausible. And Jock Jeffcoat is the kind of TV character to me that is extremely effective for a season or two and then has to go. There's no way this is now Jock's world. So I, I think we'll see how that shakes out ultimately. Epstein, you know, that that was a, that was he's a plot device. You know, he's a he's a person who can make a change happen in the story. I did speculate if Connerty struck a similar deal to what Chuck was trying to do, where he was basically trying to both eliminate Jock, but also secure a promise that Jock will not interfere in his cases. He's crusading. So Connerty has been appointed as Chuck's successor in more ways than one, as I'm sure we will discuss. But I I was wondering if how part of how they're going to maneuver around that is maybe Jock is still technically AG, but Connerty has managed to, as his payoff, basically confirm that Jock will not meddle in his business. But, but that's the thing. Like, that's the point I'm making. What, what Jock says in that room is character cannot be taught or learned. It is innate. Some people have it. These boys do. Massacre, you clearly do not. And it's supposed to just be a dunk fest on Chuck. But he's describing, ultimately, after the decisions that they've made, everybody in that room. You know, Connerty, why did he end up getting fired? Why did he end up in this position where he has to just be drinking boilermakers all the time, lamenting his current state of affairs? It's because he has too much character often. He's too blinded and too bound to his own moral compass to ever just try to play the game. And so for him to finally try to play the game with a guy who is also the devil is just a strange choice. But it's also a very potent symbolism of him choosing or him deciding that his antipathy for Chuck is just antipathy for Chuck and that he is willing to make a deal with the almost literal devil. Like to me, this was Chuck become or Connerty becoming the most like Chuck he's ever been. This is him being like, I'm going to, as you said, play the game. Right. He's going to stop being so principled. And he know. I think it is actually, I'm going to disagree with you. I do think it's crucial that he's explicitly told Chuck is doing the right thing back off, and then he and Dake mutually decide, you know, we want to restore justice to the Justice Department. 
That doesn't actually mean anything. He just decides that what he wants more than anything is Chuck gone for the sake of Chuck being gone, not for the sake of being able to do justice. That's why simultaneously I don't think it tracks with the way Connerty is behaving and it is the perfect Billion storyline because now he is just like everybody else on the show making the mistakes of the people he's been trying to bring down. He just did something that Chuck would do, that Chuck has done a million times. I think it's pur- He's becoming the thing he hates. It's purposefully meant to mirror everything that's happened with Taylor in this episode, which is that something, there was an affront to Taylor that they could not forgive and thus set off this chain of events that led to revenge. And it's a very similar to Connerty. But Taylor has always been ambitious in a way that Connerty has not been. Connerty has been the crusader. Ambition Speaking comes of ambitious in different protégés, forms. though... When Jock Jeffcoat first announced that Connerty would be taking over for Chuck, did you guys also like take a pause and wonder why Sacker wouldn't necessarily? I I don't know. I I feel like one of the seeds that they're planting is maybe antipathy between Connerty and Sacker because Sacker's already in the U.S. Attorney's office. She also contributed to this and was crucial to it. I can't help but think that like the person who has always been nakedly ambitious in the way Connerty was not would not chafe at Connerty now being her boss, even though he has not played the game up until this very moment. I think it's specifically because she knows that she can leverage him. She's got an an, an extraordinary power over him that is both uh, personal and uh, perhaps romantic and certainly metaphysical and intellectual. And so it's like when you know, ask Mal about this specifically, when you know you're smarter than your boss, you can (laughs) manipulate them in profound ways. And, you know, there's, there's, that to me wasn't shocking. Sacker being fully embracing the political animal, I thought was appropriate. And as I, as I've said on this show before, like I'm kind of just into a Sacker show. I would love to just be taken off onto that journey a little bit more aggressively. Um, That's not quite the show that I think we're going to get in the next few years, but that felt commensurate. I I think the Connerty character has been a little bit of a problem all season. And we haven't, they haven't quite known how to position him because he was white knight. He was crusader. He's been burned badly by his mentor. But then how do you recalibrate what your morality is and what your purpose is once that's happened for a character who previously existed almost as like a a vacuum of intrigue, a vacuum of drama? And I don't I'm, I'm not sure. I'm curious to see if we get a vicious, vindictive, prolific, ambitious Connerty next season or not. I think relatedly, one of the interesting questions is that so Connerty, in essence, slides into a role that has already existed. Sacker, as you know, will stay in her role where I think she has much more room to maneuver than he does because he now is in that direct reporting structure where ultimately he has to deal with the politics directly and she doesn't. Chuck is in a new role entirely. And I think we should dive right into our awards because we have a lot of them. There are three people on this podcast for the first time all season. We have not revealed our picks to each other in advance. Because if we've learned one thing from Chuck Rhodes, it is that when you aim to surprise, it always works and nothing ever backfires on you. Let's start with the big picture. MVP. Who is your MVP of this episode? I think Did you, you have could, one? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I was about to say, I think you could fairly argue that there really were no MVPs because this was a season finale that saw... All three of our principal leads humbled and the people who came up to replace them did so via very compromised means. Mm -hmm. So really my answer is that there's no MVP, but because, you know, I'm nothing if not a rule follower. I'm a I'm a Connerty in my heart. 
Uh, I just went for Wendy because I think she got the best. I think she got just like as a television watching experience. I thought the parking garage scene between her and Taylor was maybe the best and richest encounter of the episode and a relationship that has been like very subtly built up throughout the season in a way that I thought paid off really well. It is also the second finale in under two weeks that has a pivotal scene in a parking garage. Shout out to the Americans. So I really like that scene. And then also we see her repeat the maneuver that she pulled at the mid season where she brings Axe and Chuck together despite their mutual and long-standing hatred. But the first time it was a truce out of mutual interest, and now she seems to have brokered an actual semi-stable alliance that actually seems to be born out of them recognizing that they are much more similar than they are different, and they seem to have a rapport now. So I'm guessing the Axe-Chuck alliance is going to be like the main vehicle of the next season, and that only exists because of Wendy. We can make many arguments about why she is not the MVP, and I'm I, about ready to I'm do not it. To concede like, all of them, she but... got fucking dunked on by Taylor. <laughs> dunked on by Taylor. Um, I thought, I think if you wanted to say that Maggie Siff is the MVP of the episode, I think that that is absolutely credible. Okay, she's maybe fantastic. that's a better rephrase. Yeah, yeah I mean she, that she's in, it's really a, an amazing perform, a real like Emmy real performance in the garage when she has to kind of parry back with the the lines about sort of loyalty and commitment and building relationships over years, which is, you know, a romantic notion that I think I subscribe to personally and professionally, but also Taylor's response is, you know, and, and we'll certainly get there when we talk about best quotes. It's just, it, it, it is Dominique uh, Wilkins era, like highlight reel <laughs> shutting shit down in, in the dunk contest. Like it, it's just, it can't be Wendy for that reason. Um, I think we're ultimately all going to say there can't really be one. I will say that I thought this was a uniquely good episode for acts who were never forced to see grapple with any kind of morality. And it's interesting that the only morality that the only thing that could get him to grapple with morality is the question of whether or not to kill someone. Literal murder. Yes. Yeah. Which I did not I realize that murder was the possibility being entertained until Hall explicitly spelled it out, oh, yeah. which is maybe on me. But that was a real escalation of the stakes that I was not anticipating. I just have to say, not only did Wendy get dunked on by Taylor. Wendy's driving up to City Field in the shiny new Alfa Romero, the SUV. You had a Maserati that someone gave you for free. (laughs) (laughs) The fuck are you doing? Uh, Alfa Romero, that's a beautiful car. Yeah, that means that Wendy had to pay a lot of money for it. Yeah, maybe. Axe gave Wendy a Maz for free. But that came with strings attached. I think we also learned that Wendy just pulled $22 million in the previous episode, so it's not really an issue. I think it's going to be okay. Good thing, you know, carrying an unemployed husband around now, so need that Need those? Yeah, those I'm sure. I'm sure Chuck's civil servant salary was really <laughs> contributing to the household welfare. I'll make the case for freshness as the MVP because I think that you know Sean and I spent a, a good amount of last week's episode talking about the dissonance as viewers between loving the Axe Chuck dynamic and wanting that tension between them and that dick measuring contest to always be the driving force that fuels the show and also acknowledging that you can't sustain that for eight seasons or seven seasons or whatever it ends up being that you need something fresh and I loved this season this season of billions really one of the only times all year that I felt cheated was when the trio this holy trinity of Wendy, Axe, and Chuck only lasted for a second. 
You know, we get their dinner, their dining room table scene in the middle of the season, and it doesn't last long enough. And so to get that again, to see them raise their wine glasses to each other, to see them actually share their plans with each other. Though, again, another note for Wendy, like nobody breaks down a strategy like Chuck. Dude just got fired because none of his <laughs> strategies work ever. What are you talking about? Well, he, that doesn't mean he's not good at breaking down strategy. Sure. Maybe just not his own strategy. Maybe not executing strategy. But. I just loved seeing Chuck and Axe stand on the stoop and Chuck say, hello, Bob. And Axe say, Charles. Like, that felt great. I, how <laughs> many did. years did it come, take Axe to come up with, like, an equally demeaning nickname? This whole sh- like Bob has Bob always is- been Chuck's ace in the hole. When you choose to go by Axe because it is the coolest possible version of your actual name, and then your nemesis insists on calling you Bob, that is really tough. Yeah, really tough. The, and also, the- Charles and Chuck seem like roughly equivalent to me. It's- yeah, and Giamatti is a Charles, and Damian Lewis is not a Bob no. under any circumstance. No, 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 certainly not. But I don't know. Just hearing we're gonna have a real good time together. Kick in the Velvet Underground pump. But that's through the our promise. Speakers. They need to leave you wanting more. Exactly. We're, gonna, we're gonna have to get twelve hours of that next year. Well, I don't know. Or, I don't know. We, Maybe we, like five minutes. Whatever to six. plot they set up at the end of the prior season lasts for till the midway mark. They'll you know, bust you, it up. Yeah, you they heard about this. Like that mid-season reboot is a real hallmark of the show. And so who knows how long this will last, but the promise of it existing at all is very exciting to me. Yeah, the thing that's great about it is you, we get scenes with Giamatti and Damian Lewis and they are relentless about chewing the scenery against one another and that's just that's just good fun like I look forward to that I, they, they have made a grand spectacle in every season of like oh the the incredible showdown but I found myself when this episode ended just kind of wishing I could hear what they were saying to each other as the as the music queued up so that's a good sign that we at least will get more of that the spittle will fly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can't wait to hear them both shout Worth it in unison, but about somebody else mm. for a change. That'll be delightful. <laughs> It'll be their like catchphrase, the duo. I can't wait. Any other MVP candidates? Frank Sinatra, man. What a, what a great flex for Sinatra at the Sands, one of the all-time great live albums. Oh, my goodness. I'm just saying both of you are cheating, and I am the only one who picked an actual character from the show <laughs> as the criterion for this award, but I'll, it's I'll fine. A, I'm not bitter. I'll make a briefcase for Grigor. I think it was a great episode mm. for Grigor Andaloth as an actual villain who is terrifying and will will literally kill you Good or take. somebody in your life. I tell you what I liked about that, too. It's a great call. He was expert at identifying all the ways in which he owns you. You know, that's the sign of like, that was sort of Thanos-esque, I thought. You know, there's sort of like, if you do this, you're done. If you do this, you're done. If you do this, you're done. He he was, Axe was going to be trapped no matter what choice he made. Yes. And... That was fascinating. I, I certainly didn't see that the, the way when, the, when those scenes were playing out. So to hear it explicated, sometimes that feels like bad exposition on a show. But in this case, I was like, wow, he screwed. Right. I also did really like that, despite that, Axe kind of found a way to make his Grigor's strength and do anything quality almost sound like a weakness. Where he basically says the difference between us is that I was raised in a place that didn't require these extraordinary member measures and you weren't. And that's almost like you were traumatized into acting this way. And I actually have like the security and confidence to not want to murder my enemies. I thought that everything that Grigor said, either in response to a line like that from Axe or to lead to, to lead to a line like that from Axe in the first place, 
just more than anything else this season really allowed you to understand in unambiguous fashion why this is a man to be feared. And who knows how much longer he'll be on the show? Like, did any of us think this was going to be a recurring character for years? I don't know, but... Certainly he's going to be around for part of season four. Has to be. I mean, he had a good foreshadowing line that's yeah. basically like, you can you can have this warfare, but if this ever comes back to bite me, which of course it will because right. it's finance, so Axe is going to go after Taylor's money, then then we'll have a problem. Right. So then. That's, a, that's a good transition into our LVPs, our least valuable players of the episode. No Lara, so... Lara can't win, but just since it's the last episode of The Recapables Billions, let's just say for the record one more time that Lara always stays losing. She's getting extra security put on her. That's her role in this episode. That's right. And the kids. Because I remember I have kids, so have someone watch them because I, I definitely I have can't, children. I probably I, can't I remember their names off the top of my head. But. One of them is called Gordy. Uh, LVPs. Gotta be Mephee. What the hell is Mephee doing? How Guys. could that possibly be the oh, move? Wow. Our darling Dudley leaving but, the nest. What? I, but I mean, really? After just having the, the compensation conversation but and the, the Wendy interactions and knowing that <laughs> turning on Axe is like a top five worst move in society. I, what the hell is Mephi He doing? loves loyalty and he's loyal to Taylor. I actually did buy that. I also think that Ben Kim is a spy, but Ooh, interesting. I like that. I just think he denied it like a little too confidently given like literally everything we know about Ben Kim. Good call. I like that. Hmm. I don't know. I just, I, given the way that Mephi responded when encountered by Axe, I was like, wow, you really haven't thought this through. And I'll tell you what, as, as a manager, I've had people leave the place of employee that I worked at and you want somebody to be confident and know why they're leaving. That's like a, that's a, that's a true thing that really matters. And for whatever reason, if he just seemed like a like like Dudley, like you said, like a his buffooner self. Also, if we're meant to believe that he's a buffoon, how do we how do we really know that he's a good uh, a good analyst, a, a, a suitable person to be picked off by Taylor? I, I'm not sure I ever really totally got that sense. I don't think Taylor really wants his business acumen per se. I think they just want counsel. Mm-hmm. I think they want their version of a Wags, and Wags is not really someone who, as much as we love him, he's not really the one who's like the ingenious strategist who comes up with the things that Axe can't. He's Axe's almost sounding board. A right hand. Yeah. yeah. But, but Mephi can't be Wags, and that's why, no Taylor, one can that's be why Wags. Taylor's going to fail, because Taylor doesn't see that. You know, when Axe walks into the room, Mephi's terrified. He says, oh, fuck. It was time for a change. I'm sure you thought so, too. I want to thank you. I figured I would when the dust settles. What? This guy just gave you $2 million. Now, granted, he asked you to compromise your moral integrity in a way that you and never had done and had, himself had sought to avoid <laughs> and for your entire an life. actual crime. Wags is the guy who, when you bring up a velociraptor, turns that metaphor around on you and makes you feel like you're being devoured by the dinosaur in that moment in time. And Mephi is the guy who, when you walk into the room, says, oh, fuck. That Taylor does not have wags now. I completely agree. Let me do a little cross promo. Check out the rewatchables next week, Jurassic Park. Just saw the movie <laughs> uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Not great. Um, the Velociraptor line was very interesting, though. And that whole sequence and setup is very interesting because even though it seems like those those guys are on top of the world as they're walking into the Rays, I think we know that they're doomed to failure immediately because we're, we see Taylor creating um, momentum for this new business that they're launching. 
I think you could make the case that everybody at Axe Cap is the LVP this this episode too. As much as I enjoyed Axe and his moral quandary, um, this is a pretty big hit, you know. To 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 presume that you have raised six billion dollars and then to just lose five point five billion dollars in the span of twelve hours is could you lose worse? I mean, even by the standards that they set out for themselves, Wags obviously right. He wanted high. a third. Wa- yeah, a Wags third. wants a third of the thirty billion right. on the table. That's ten billion. They book six, and that's still enough for Axe to feel good enough to throw a private hold steady concert. <laughs> by which I mean the the billions writers and crew threw themselves a private hold steady concert. <laughs> no shame. Respect it. Yeah. As with any episode of Billions, there were 10 moments where I thought watching Axe on TV is like one of my absolute favorite things about being alive right now. (laughs) But despite that, Axe and Chuck are my co-LVPs of this episode and the season. And And the season. Yeah. And that's what makes it good TV. Yeah. They can't. It's actually not compelling if the powerful guy and the rich guy just always win. Forcing them to reassess what is working and what isn't is interesting. And I know this might seem like a contradiction because I said that the union of Wendy, Axe, and Chuck is my MVP. And now I'm saying that two of those three people on earlier made the case for Wendy, so really all of them are LVPs. But I actually think that logic tracks because they only come together at the end to forge something new and promising. It's really every step along the way where you're just watching and thinking, how do you not see how much shit you're stepping in? Chuck, again, I always expect this of Chuck, just so many L's for Chuck in this episode. Let's just quickly run through a few of them. First of all, you're meeting with a guy at foot rub, back rub. First red flag. Conduct your business meetings. By billion standards, that scene did not go nearly <laughs> as badly as I thought we were going to. It was going to when I saw a Chinatown massage parlor that's, that's, as an establishing shot. That's very fair. <laughs> when Epstein says to Chuck, ask something big for yourself so he believes you're in it for your own reasons. This is all about trying to manipulate Jock to bring him into their web. And Chuck says... And then it's time for the prestige. Again, this is so emblematic of Chuck's character and his mindset. He always thinks he's the one pulling off the magic trick. It never occurs to him that it's going to work in reverse and that he's going to be the victim. He's going to be the one who was duped. And then once again, just taking terrible advice from his father. How is he still in a position where he is going to Charles Sr. for counsel? And then more alarmingly, Acting on that council. I don't think it's ever occurred to me until the, this moment, but how are you married to a therapist and still have this deep-seated issue with your own father that you do not appear to have given, like, any introspection to? Well, maybe that's one of the many Wendy screw-ups that Taylor was referencing. You Fair know? point. Not getting Chuck in order. Charles Sr. says, if the end game is coming sooner or later, even if it might crush you, I say bring it on! And Chuck's like, Sounds great, Dad. Let me bring on the crushing endgame. Let me p- pitch a quick theory. Is Chuck Sr. Uh, suffering from dementia? What, like w- Between like last <laughs> week's speech <laughs> and this week's uh, devil-may-care pursuit of something, which is kind of the opposite of the tactical, strategic implications he seems to have given his son over the years. What, 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 what happened? <laughs> I think it's just he feels 
cut out from the action and anything that gives him the thrill of feeling involved. So telling his son to make a risk, maybe he gets like a residual high off of that. Mm -hmm. Crashing his son's carefully calibrated negotiation with a friend soon to be ex-wife by using some unsavory lime juice imagery. (laughs) I just just think he feels feels so isolated that his craving to be involved is superseding any like real strategic thinking. I think that's like my diagnosis, although I do like the dementia theory. I think you're right. The greatest betrayal of Senior's life was Chuck operating against him, deceiving him in any capacity. But the only thing he actually cannot abide is missing out on the action for even a day. He just can't stand it. He needs to feel like he's connected to it. Speaking of Senior and his apartment and conversations that happened there, and another reason that this episode was an L for Chuck, think about this for a moment when chuck needs to have a conversation with tyga about ira shout out tyga shout out tyga forever hope you're out there eating truffles just keep just keep shaving those truffles also quick correction we we were informed that right. uh tyga's name had been uttered twice before on this show which is a mistake that mal and i made last week continue i'd like to think we were just so blinded by the beauty of the truffles falling onto the pasta plate and into Ira's martini and any other time that Tyga had appeared in the scene with the truffle, a distracting truffle. But anyway, Chuck needs to have that conversation at Senior's apartment because he can't risk being seen. But when Epstein, a man he is operating with in secret and under no circumstances can Jock find out that Chuck is in direct communication with Epstein because then the, the game is up. When Epstein calls him and says, no, we can't meet at my office. Let's meet at yours. Chuck says, great idea. Let's meet at mine where everyone will see us. That phone call was the most, oh, shit, this did not go as planned signal. Like when they when they show this incredibly elaborate plan, including the planning of the wire and how they're going to put off the in the spa. And then the next scene is Epstein just being like, we did it. Yeah. <laughs> it's done. <laughs> we can play the tape. But again, that's on Chuck. I'm watching that. I'm like, how do you not see what's happening here? You don't have a spidey sense that tingles and says something is off. They are playing me. I am being played. This guy who knows we can't be seen together is asking to come to my office. We believe what we want to believe. What is Chuck We want to think we're a genius and we're not a genius. That's just the truth. I did. It was the flaw of even hugely successful people. It's true. And for that reason, it was satisfying to see so many callbacks to Chuck's lines being used against him. We get to hear Epstein bring up, you know, having his head in the tiger's mouth again, but the breath was just too hot. I love that. Obviously, extremely satisfying to hear Sacker say, You recognized I was a political animal. You fed it, nurtured it. And I warned you it might bite you. That's where we are. Wait, what did you think about having her kind of greet him at the door there? I thought that was an interesting choice that didn't have to happen. And then obviously we get the cut to the assistant who looks concerned, um, mildly traumatized by what's about to take place in the future. But did you think that that was maybe a little bit too much icing on the cake? I think it did stress the parallel between what's happening in Chuck's storyline and what happens in Axe's storyline, which maybe now would be a good time to mention. My vote for LVP is all the heirs apparent who take over the throne this episode, but do so in a way that confirms that they are just as bad as their mentors. Mm, yeah. Like they, they quote unquote won, they succeeded, but right. Connerty especially was my specific vote. But He's using Chuck's actual words. Like, again, that's cathartic as a viewer. He says, drop your credentials at the desk and get the fuck out of here. Feels great to hear it. 
to not realize that he's turning into the thing he hates. It's just, I don't know. What's going on with my dude? He's I don't changed. know if Connerty was ever my dude, but... I was Team Connerty for a long time, but now I'm out. I'm still fully Team Sacker, though. But even Taylor, I mean, I think it's a little less extreme because Taylor has always been someone who is aware of some of the shady dealings having an ex-capital. Even though they brag to Wendy that this is going to be a place with no arrests or indictments and it's a clean slate and you can leave and you don't have to be weighed down by ex-capital anymore. They were so averse to even speaking with Andalov and dealing with him that they intentionally tanked a meeting with his deputy. And now they are directly courting his money, which maybe that has more to do with Andalov's ties to Axe and how it will hurt Axe. But it's still a real, you know, Taylor was acting as the conscience in this situation. And now they are apparently without second thoughts or remorse, just Right. Going using the exact same tactic that they derided as unnecessarily risky before. Totally agree. Let me ask, based on that, are you rooting for Taylor? I'm rooting for Axe to be taken down a peg, I think. I, As you mentioned before, it's boring to see Axe be a super genius who wins and pulls one over literally every single time. And it's a testament to the show that they've built an ensemble that even though this show has been built billed as like a two or a three-hander from the beginning, I'm excited to see where these other characters go and I'm excited to spend more time just watching them. But yeah, I agree. It's not so much that I'm rooting for Taylor so much as I want Axe to have a real competitor so he can struggle. Oh, I like the... Yeah, that's... I'm definitely not rooting for Taylor. I think Taylor has made an error here, um, a serious error, but I do like what it activated in Axe. And I do think it's a great, it's the, they telegraphed this, um, months ago, but that I've been okay with it the whole time because I feel like it's a great storytelling move direction to go in. Telegraphed for episodes, telegraphed for maybe the entire season, though it took me a few weeks to really believe to accept. I just, I don't know. I I love that crackling energy between, between Axe and Taylor, though, I guess we'll get it now in a different... It was different, really good in the yeah, showdown conversation. Facet. I mean, that was exciting. It was. It was. The, the true death zone. That is part of why Axe, again, despite those joyous moments that we always get from Axe, is the LVP of the episode, though, because it was not telegraphed to Axe, apparently. You know, Axe is supposed to be the person who sees the board. That is how Axe got rich. Like, no moral compass, we'll do whatever is necessary, we'll profit off of 9-11, but always understands who is trying to act against him in what capacity and to what extent. And just was completely blindsided by this. And that's okay, though it manifested in certain specific ways that I just found, I was like, Axe, I'm let down by you, buddy, truly. For example, we get to City Field, the home of Sean's beloved Mets, for the cap race. Beloved is a complicated adjective given this season. How are you going to feel about seeing DeGrom in darker pinstripes? Not here, Mallory. Okay, that's for the, the Ringer MLB show. <laughs> Taylor's late. And Axe says, literally one episode after telling Taylor, you're not on the Rays team at all, and then having to be talked into it by Wendy and Lara, the pitch doesn't work without Taylor. How did we get there? Like, I just don't understand from Axe's perspective, from this man I have grown to trust and believe in, how he got there. And then, not only does the pitch not work without Taylor, the pitch is Taylor. Axe 
the firm is named after him. His whole speech when he didn't want to give people bonuses was, I'm the one who does everything. I'm the one who earns all the money. And then in front of all the investors, all the people who are about to give him their millions and billions, he says, I'm just here to say hi. I'm going to turn it over now to the main attraction and then positions Taylor as the key to everything. Axe says, Taylor is the single most effective manager I have ever come across. They are the future of Axe Capital. Now, obviously, again, from a storytelling perspective, this makes perfect sense. He is setting up, he is, he is boosting Taylor's value without realizing that he's doing it. But I don't understand how he got there in his own mind. How did he make that pivot from saying, I'm the only one who has any value to Taylor is everything? It's the same problem that Chuck had with believing Epstein on the call. It's just you believe what you want to believe. You believe that you've also created more destiny for people than they could ever create for themselves. And that's a really great way to fail at your work. I still think the person with whom that is most at odds with their image and their self-image is Wendy. Acts, it's true earns his reputation from being able to see the board. And one of the common strains throughout the season has been the way that his ability to read people is out of whack. I mean, I think that was the main takeaway from that whole Mm -hmm. cancer doctor subplot. But Wendy, when she admits in the parking garage that she was manipulated by Taylor, Taylor, whose whole reputation is that they are cold and that they don't really have a sense of people and they're building this quant operation. They want Wendy just to tune up their people because that's not something that they can do. And Wendy, the person whose whole job is to read and intuit, was somehow played by that person. I think maybe, wow, after I just argued that Wendy was the MVP. Really cutting down your own case here. Look, guys, I just, I had to make a choice. This podcast is a process, you know? It takes I had to make a choice. Both of you declined to make one, but I made a choice. Yeah, I just think that I think I do agree that T-Max just, like, took a huge loss this whole season. You know when you're losing? You know when you know unambiguously you're losing? When Ben Kim is also dunking on you. And (laughs) after Axe forces Ben to explain how Taylor tried to recruit Ben, and then the entire thing about the paper title and not giving Ben a raise comes up and Axe says, sorry to break it to you, that was Taylor's idea. Ben concedes, wow, from a from a game theory perspective, that's effective. And then Axe says, This ain't no game. But Taylor treated it like it was, and you fell for it. I don't mean that. No, I was suckered. And now I will have my turn. <laughs> and then, of course, he immediately backtracks and panics. I don't mean that. And Axe has to concede to Ben fucking Kim. No, I was suckered. Ben Kim takes the subway, man of the people. <laughs> Shout out to the one train. Obviously, Axe being in a situation where he either has to put out a hit on Taylor or lose Grigger's money and trust and confidence because he doesn't is a huge L for Axe, not only in this episode, but moving forward in terms of his business, his wealth, and possibly his life. Not unreasonable to think we should maybe be concerned about that. Murder has been introduced. It's on the table. This is a murder show now. I'm excited. (laughs) I don't know if I'm ready for Billions to be a murder show, but maybe that's just me not being willing to take the plunge, and that's why I'm not a brilliant traitor. I think that this is a show that has really artfully and smartly um, introduced a character as complex as Taylor, and the likelihood of the murder of Taylor happening seems extremely low to me. I just don't think that the way that they have handled that signals that we should expect that. Also, just generally... 
Asia K. Dillon has been such a such a boon for the show. Mm-hmm. Is such such a gifted performer, and the tension that we see in in that showdown between Axe and Taylor, it just makes it clear to me that. I, I don't think they're getting killed anytime soon. I don't think Taylor specifically will be killed. I also think billions. One of the things I most appreciate about TV shows is when they are able to come up with stakes that are not like marriage, murder or pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And that's why I love show workplace, truly great workplace shows like Mad Men, like Halt and Catch Fire, like billions are so good because they make just the things people do when they go into the office every day seem important enough that you can hinge on them. And obviously in billions, it has to do the stakes are literally billions of dollars. Right. So that that's the thing is that right now for acts, the thing on the line suddenly is, is his life. Not, forget Taylor. Taylor's safe now. What about Axe? Because mean, just in terms of Gregor. Yeah, because when when Axe makes the call, you know he's he's watched Hall get slapped in the face. He's got to make a decision here, and he says, "I don't want Taylor dead. I want them alive to experience all that I am going to do to them. I'm going to destroy them in ways that'll make them wish they got what you offered." Sure, why not? Have fun, but remember. If what you do to them costs me, we will meet again. Okay, by definition, how could whatever Axe does next not cost Grigor? His stated mission is, quote, total destruction of Taylor and the empire that Taylor is trying to build. So it's a, it's a stated declaration of intent. I am trying to bring down Taylor and the company Taylor is building. Your money, you, the man who are threatening my life, my livelihood, that money is with Taylor now. None of that... Sets up well for Axe. Axe going full paranoid Howard Hughes-esque billionaire who's like shut in his glass box because he's afraid he might be poisoned is also a very promising yeah. direction for the character. Floor to ceiling windows, you know, not great for a guy whose life might be on the line. <laughs> I enjoyed his little, uh, you know, moral tug of war with Wendy, though, over over cocktails. Were they in robes? What was happening there? Uh, it looked to me like was they were on lounge blankets? chairs wearing blankets. Those were like thermal blankets. Yeah. yeah. What? I one of the sure fans like, yet that they will fuck one day. <laughs> <laughs> I thought. I couldn't help but wonder if it was like meant to be a spring or summer scene and it was just like unseasonably cold. And so they put the cast in blankets and then they were like, that's a good look. Let's just stick with that for the scene. It just looks you know so what? unnatural. Hearing you say that it makes me realize for the first time that it's almost always impossible to tell what season it is on Billions because the characters have such specific personal wardrobes. You know, yeah. Axe is always going to have a Henley and a hoodie on and Chuck is always going to have his multi-piece suit on no matter what. It must have been late fall would be my guess. Looked brisk. Uh, Axe had a couple of killer jackets, I must say, from the Kevin Clark collection. Um, when he, every time he had an encounter with Grigor, you know, and, and was that was that a the black one with white piping yeah. was really it was really a choice. Spiffy. I've yeah. got an Axe fashion take for you. I'm ready for better sneakers. Yeah, the Pumas, the New Balance. Yeah, he's, I think he's the, a rich the dad guy. Dad, yeah. yeah. I feel like he would at least be shifting into the white sneaker, white dad sneaker. I, I want to see know. him in some like vintage Air Max 95s, you know? Show me that you can be Phenomenal. a true hype beast. That's what I want to see. Just like Sean Fennessy. All right. right. <laughs> that was a scarring thing to hear. And as such, let's move on okay. to our most scarring moments. What I mean, they're got? all Andalov, right? Certainly some of them are, though. I have a couple other contenders. Okay. Why don't you run through your nominees? Well, so f- my honorable mention is during the Hold Steady concert, there's like a half second cutaway to Ari Spiros dancing in the crowd at oh, a concert. Oh, I didn't see that. Oh, I, I do not ever want to see that again. You are lucky and fortunate. That's just, I had to shout that out. Um, Andalov 
creepily hitting on Taylor and saying, I was just asking myself if I would. And you know what? I would. Wow. Every day you live this life, you learn something about yourself. Delightful. I enjoy the delightful at the end I, of I enjoyed him saying, wow, <laughs> out loud, <laughs> and not as onomatopoeia. That was great. Um, but hitting on someone is a weird negotiation tactic. Always a great look on everyone. And finally, as someone who has spent like a non-zero portion of my life enviously staring at New York real estate and knowing I will never be able to afford it. And then learning that Andalov has a entire, I'm assuming Upper East Side townhouse that he only uses for quote, special conversations. Yeah. For murder Just chats. Killed yeah. me. And then he's like, oh, and by the way, I'm planning on buying the entire block right. and combining them. Like I'm freaking Madonna. Like and then he'll have quilts. Yeah. And healing Just crystals. having a foosball table and a, Prison cut? <laughs> Looks very first reformed. Looks like Ethan Hawke's apartment. Extremely scarring. That was on my list as well. The prison cut was very tough, very concerning. As was everything he said. Seeing him slap Hall was a big moment. You know, oh, John Malkovich is not a small man. I imagine that mitt, that backhand, was quite powerful. You know, Nadal esque. I have another scarring moment. I'm not sure I'll ever recover, and I mean this sincerely, from Connerty. Walking into his own home and Oliver Dink popping up <laughs> on the couch from the sleepover. Those I two are just sweet. roommates now? You know? I don't, I did, it's a buddy, it's a buddy comedy. Dink I don't needed need. a place to crash and tenured law professors, question mark. I'm assuming at UVA, obviously cannot afford a night in a Brooklyn hotel. I don't know what to tell you. Justice creates strange bedfellows. Get back on that Acela, my man. I always like hearing about the Acela. I miss the Acela. Certainly hearing Hall and Axe discuss murder so openly was unsettling and unnerving. Hall's rundown of all the possible murder scenarios will stick with me for some time. There would be an accident. Falling debris on the street. What's the euphemism he uses? It's like these people have refined workflow in this area (laughs) in a way. This is the worst one. A heart attack from a blockage no one saw coming. My goodness. Chilling stuff. (laughs) Got a lot of great ideas in this episode. Uh, You guys haven't named the the most harrowing visual in this whole episode, which is uh, Jock Jeffcoat's big smile. smile. That is Clancy Brown. Quite a set of chompers on him. Uh, The way he managed to communicate while with his clenched teeth. There's also that... uh, it doesn't actually happen in the world of the show, but the brief visual of Clancy Brown hurling everything off a desk <laughs> was, was really wonderful. That whole conversation. I think my favorite part was when he gets really indignant because Chuck and Wendy invited him into his home. Yeah. And because of the presence of the cowboy hat. You know, you can't use a cowboy hat he against Jack. Jeff really Ford. misinterpreted. I liked that he brought up the teaser thing from the, the first episode again. That was great. Yeah. Where, where do you guys Wait. think Carl is right now? Basically the only guy who was part of that who wasn't in that room on one side or another. That's a back, to, back to drafting ad campaigns. What find can him, I say? Find a pure velvet somewhere else. I'd completely forgotten about that. I don't know. Well, we didn't get the words pure velvet on this episode, but we got plenty of other good quotes. What are your nominees for best quote of the episode? If you're going to go around, go like a rich person. Take a chopper. I like that one. Jesus Christ. No, just me. Yeah, that was good. 
That was good. I had so many from Grigor. I, Al, you already uh, mentioned the I was just asking myself line. I also weirdly really liked <laughs> the way he talked about the threat of carbon monoxide poisoning. That's kind of a strange digression. I like this image. I think that, that's very Trumpian. Like, I trust myself to smell carbon monoxide. It was, again, it was just an effective, like, this is who I am, understand me and fear me kind of line. They say you can't smell it or taste it or even know it's putting you to sleep, but I always think I would. Most people are already sleepwalking through their lives, so they don't notice how could they. It's only a matter of degree. I liked that. No amount I give to charity will atone for the ass fucking I give you in this business. Very tough for Mafi to have to hear that. Yeah. Speaking of tough to hear, uh, she was something of a town scooter. Is uh, that a term? Uh, it is now. Uh, <laughs> I also have that line down. Jeff, Jeff Coat, I, the, the very prospect of Jock Jeff Coat um, being carnal is upsetting. So Yeah, I was going to say, don't sleep on the first part of that quote. I betted his sister back in the day, truth be told. Pause. So did my brother. Just <laughs> Zebulon, what are you doing? This is unfortunate. We already discussed the Velociraptor exchange, but here it is in its entirety. Uh, Stephen Birch, always there to look like an idiot. What a dummy. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the Velociraptor was extinct, and then Axe's former boss, Bill McCann, apparently now a recurring character on the show, and yet it walks among us, and then Wags just dives in. The Velociraptor doesn't walk, it stalks, hunts, kills with great stealth and speed. And if you want him to prove that to you, keep fucking talking. Good stuff. Love wags. On a slightly more serious note, the exchange that I thought was basically the thesis statement of this entire show, and I thought was a really good thematic, you know, just putting it all out there moment, was in the parking garage Wendy makes the case for what is essentially her job and says, this business, finance, it's not just about numbers and decimal points. The thing that makes it matter is lasting relationships, true loyalty, real trust, to which Taylor responds, I think very truthfully, no, I'm pretty sure there's only money and it can buy all those things or at least produce the same result. And the most devastating part, that's what you and X taught me. I loved that so much, not least of all because it, reminded me heavily of there is no good and evil there is only power and those too weak to seek it taylor is voldemort now <laughs> or quirldemort depending on if you want to go with the book or movie rendition of the line yeah not to be too sentimental but this one's gonna come back on taylor and i i, I wonder about how much taylor plotted this conversation ahead of time with the expectation that Wendy would decline and in, in the event of a decline, use these words against her because I think some, it was something strategic there. Well, I don't know if it was strategic so much as emotional. I think Taylor's really angry mm -hmm. at Wendy for her perceived slights and sins and manipulation of people that Taylor cares about. I, I think they went into it knowing that Wendy wouldn't say yes and that they just had things that they needed to get off their chest. Mm -hmm. Right. I also don't know if necessarily this is going to come back to bite Taylor or this specific thing is going to come back to bite Taylor, although I agree I don't know if this is going to go well for them. Characters who say, no, I'm pretty sure there's only money, th those characters don't win. Like, they don't win on TV shows ever. I agree that they won't win. I just also think, like, this in itself was a moment of karma coming back to bite Wendy and Axe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Wendy having to stand there while Taylor says, I'm not just offering you a job for my sake. I'm offering you a fresh start for yours, a reset from your slew of 
fuck-ups? That is elite. Elite work by Taylor. I mean, Wendy's already had a lot of moments like this, but it always reminds me of that episode of The Sopranos where Carm gets sent to Carmella gets sent to the psychiatrist who's actually like a shriveled old like no man in an office filled with books that's very dark. But the psychiatrist basically says, like, I'm telling you that you need to leave, not because I think you will, but because like now you have no excuse and someone has told you and you're choosing to ignore it. And I think Wendy gets a lot of moments like that where it's like Mm -hmm. you are in business with a ruthless criminal and what you do, even though it is theoretically in the interest of people. You know, Kate Nibbs wrote a really great piece for the site that basically argues that Wendy is as immoral as either of the men that she's involved with. And I always like it when Billions offers an in-text reminder of that. Yeah, it was refreshing to see Wendy show some self-awareness for once and after Axe calls and they're on the phone and Wendy says, fuck them over, you have to, we do. And Axe says, well, that's different from look inward, which was Wendy's counsel this same episode, just earlier in the episode. And Wendy says, yeah, well, you know what? I'm different. That's actually the only time really all season that I've thought maybe Wendy will be okay because Wendy finally realizes that Wendy has changed and is not just this like soothsayer who can always see the right path for herself and for other people, like acknowledging that she has changed and that she's just as flawed and compromised and just as motivated by base instincts as everyone around her. That's really important for her development moving forward. I agree. In her fancy car. That is not a Maserati (laughs) for reasons that I still don't understand. Any other quotes we want to bang through? Make your man do what you want him to do, not what's good for him. The object of any worthwhile contest. Chuck Sr. did not have a great season. I don't think he will or have any great he? seasons. I mean, every one of his <laughs> scenes was absolute spectacular television. None of his choices are good, but again, consistent. Uh, my final nominee here is Axe to Taylor. Maybe. You're ready for the summit. But you know what they call that spot up on Everest? The death zone. Some people, they make that up, and then they make it back home. But there are countless more fucking dead encased in ice for all time. That's where you are now. And very few people can even survive on the available oxygen up here. Even fewer can perform. So, we'll see. Young lungs. So, yeah, we will. So, yeah, we will. I loved that whole exchange. Truly, truly wonderful. How do you know when you're saving and investing for the life you want? Finances big and small can be confusing, just like the ups and downs at Axe Capital. Understanding the market can be intimidating, just like Rigor Andalov. Fortunately, Betterment, the largest online financial advisor, is here to change that. Its mission is to help customers make the most of their money by taking complex investing strategies and using technology to make them more efficient. At Betterment, hidden costs are nowhere to be found. No matter who you are or how much money you invest, you get everything for one low and transparent management fee. And as a fiduciary, they make recommendations in clients' best interest. They're not incentivized to recommend certain funds, and they don't have their own investment products to sell. Better yet, Betterment offers personalized advice and a suite of tools to help you know whether you're on track to hit your investing goals or get the retirement you want. Sign up today, and as of the Recapables Billions listener, you can get up to one year managed free. Remember, investing involves risk. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash ice juice. That's Betterment.com slash ice juice. And now let's get into some pop culture references. 
What about pop culture references of the week? Wendy's Nick Saban impression was at the top of mine. I also don't know if this counts as like a pop culture reference, but the Sarah Blakely cameo. Spanx. This was a great season for cameos. You can you can tell like as a show gets more popular. I just rewatched some Sex in the City, and you can see the same thing happen there. Where like once it gets big enough, Lucy Liu agrees to come on and play herself. There's a similar like as Billions right. gets bigger and better. You know, yeah, it's the, a badge of honor. Yes. Yeah. And like, there's more of them, and they're really judicious. And also, Mark Cuban accepted. I think the quality of the acting has been pretty good. <laughs> I thought Katie was good. I wasn't on that episode, but I'm just going to stand for Katie, who's come under fire in recent times, as you know. I'm a fan of Katie. But happy bar mitzvah, everyone. Yeah, <laughs> um, I agree. It's been a good season for cameos. The Roll Tide reference that you just mentioned was it did not exist in a vacuum. It was in a incredible string of references where we got Apocalypse Now, Shakespeare, and Alabama football all in one exchange. Wendy says, should I give you napalm in the morning? Axe says, I already got a version. Wendy, then no vice but beggary? <laughs> Just casually dropping in the bard. And then Axe says, how about Nick Saban? Roll, tide, roll. And Wag says, that's fucking impressive, where, of course, he should have said War Eagle. Mal, I know you will appreciate this, so I'm going to make this pitch directly to you. <laughs> I'm going to hypothesize that the Bonnie Prince Charlie reference secretly counts as an Outlander reference. I, I also think it secretly <laughs> counts as an Outlander reference. Anything that gives me an excuse to think of Jamie in a kilt, I'm fine with and fully in support of. I have literally no idea what's going on right now. Scotland. <laughs> Look it up. Watch Outlander. It's great. It. We also got a Glen Gary, Glenn Ross reference. Only Ricky Roma can be late. That's right. Only Ricky Roma can be late. We got Barry White. A lot of Barry White talk on this episode. Obviously, you already mentioned the Hold Steady conference. And we got a couple, as usual, a couple Godfather references. Wag says, other than Mephee, it appears only Ben Kim sleeps with the fishes. Shouts to Luca Brasi now and always. And Jock dropping some Godfather with a little Salvatore Tessio. There was another one. Today you settled all family business. That's exactly right. Mm. Kind of a pop culture reference. Also just a scarring moment. Another Andalove highlight. You know, if I were standing here naked as Paris Hilton oh, and yeah. twice yeah, as fucked. twice as fucked. That was... I mean, there's a lot of... and <laughs> Like, one of the good, subtle Andalov as a villain touches is that he consistently misgenders Taylor, uh, which is something I only picked up on a second watch. I, I only picked up on that in this episode. Has yeah. that, that been happening all season? I don't know. Uh, well, I almost, for a second, I thought it was interacted. a mistake in this episode. I couldn't figure that out. I took it as pretty intentional. Also... Wags at one point refers to Taylor as that bitch, which in Wall Street parlance could definitely be gender neutral, Cuts but every way, yeah. I, I took it as kind of a, I'm going to show some subtle disrespect to this person Interesting. that okay. I don't high, hold in high esteem anymore. All right, team, any final notes on this episode, this season, things you're looking forward to in season four? I did have Chuck in private practice in all caps. I do think <laughs> if I can make a prediction. Chuck should have been governor. I think what's going to happen is we're going to get like a small time or small to medium time jump. And Axe is obviously still at Axe Capital, but I'm hoping we're going to get some like really excellent in medias res. What is Chuck up to? Maybe he's business partners with Ira again. Who knows? I just think there's going to be some like really ridiculous fun thing that he's going to be up to in between seasons that he'll probably drop in the first couple episodes of season four. But just I have high hopes. I'm going to throw this out there. Based on the Axe, Wendy, Chuck, 
dining room table scenes we've seen so far. Another season of The Wine Show, but with that, those three. Love it. Instead of the Matthews. What do you think? We should, we should still get Matt Reese in there, though, because he's, he's out of work with the Americans being over, too. That's true. That's true. All right. Anything else? Mm, I just love that this is the only show on TV that can give you the hold steady, the Velvet Underground and Frank Sinatra in the same episode and for it to feel somewhat natural. So yeah, shout out to Billions Forever. It makes sense. All right, everyone. Thank you for hanging with us and comparing apples to our money all season long here on the Recapables Billions on the Ringer Podcast Network. It's like asking a magician how they do their tricks. This podcast. That's what it's like. It's not magic. It's the opposite of magic. It's grinding, focused work. And we're glad that you were here with us the whole way. Thank you. 